Welcome to Insight, live at noon with a rebroadcast at 7 p.m. Voter turnout among California Latinos has the potential to be record-breaking, but voting behavior isn't necessarily predictable. Ahead on Insight, we'll learn how the Latino vote has evolved and what that could mean with the California primary results just one week away. Also, the war in Ukraine has now entered its third year, with no end in sight. A Sacramento-based journalist who's been traveling to Ukraine since the very beginning gives us an update on the fighting and the impact on Ukrainians. Finally, we have back-to-back drag performances coming up in Placer and Sacramento counties this weekend. We'll preview a fashion show in Rockland and Mama's Making Bacon. It is a drag show at the Sacramento Memorial Auditorium. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. That's all coming up today on Insight. First, here's the news. From CAP Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. California is home to the most Latinos in the country, over 15 million, making up 40 percent of the state's population. And that translates to voting power. According to the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials, more than six million ballots were mailed out to California Latino voters for next week's primary. And the nonprofit projects voter turnout could break a record, which was set back during the 2020 presidential election. But is the enthusiasm there? And not to mention, voting behaviors have also evolved in that time and are far from uniform. Here to talk about the impact Latino voters have on next week's California primary is political consultant Luis Alvarado, who specializes in the Latino vote. Welcome to Insight. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Always a pleasure being with you. Yes. Now joining us at at noon with the broadcast at 7 p.m. I want to get to the latest numbers from Political Data Inc., which tracks ballot returns across the state. So more than six million ballots were mailed out to Latino voters in California. As of this moment, a week ahead of the primary, four percent have been returned. What does that say to you? How does that track with previous election years? I had a conversation a few minutes ago with the guru, Paul Mitchell, where was the information you just quoted. And, uh, you know, uh, straight up, he's, you know, he just says they're not there. They're just not showing up. And uh, uh, specifically, uh, there's many reasons why you can assume that that's not happening, but they are absolutely tracking much less than they have in past elections. Going back to the last two elections, from the 2020 to the midterm in 2022 to now in 2024, just looking at these three election years, what have been the biggest changes? Because 2020 was record-breaking. And this is a presidential election. Yes, it's a pres- but we're in the presidential primary. So, you know, distinguish between the November election and today, I, I assure you there's going to be more Latino uh, enthusiasm and my favorite word is effervescency uh, when it comes to the Latino vote. And you have to fire something up. I just finished reading an article in the Los Angeles Times about um, Los Angeles uh, CD14 race where there are multiple Latinos uh, trying to take a seat there to get Kevin DeLeon to uh, uh, to uh, relinquish his seat. And the article overall uh, states that there is no fire. There is no uh incandescent issues there is no fire there's no attacks there is no ais it's just plain vanilla this is who i am and this is what i'm going to do and it's kind of merging into uh, you know the prism of it's not just a latino uh, voters it's 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 general electors mentality so we see not just the fact that there's latinos are, are not voting it's young latinos which when it comes specifically to our communities, the majority of the Latinos in our community are younger Latinos. So when you see that they are not being motivated to come and work, uh, senior citizens, uh, uh, Latino senior citizens uh, are in par with their uh, counterparts and the other uh, uh, demographics. But 
we need the Latino youngster to come out and vote. And we're not seeing that at all. Mm. Okay, but if I heard you correctly, you think that there's going to be a bump up when it comes to the general election in November. These factors don't really change when it comes to the candidates, when it comes to being a younger electorate. Why do you think that we'll see a higher turnout? I mean, I know historically general elections are higher turnout than primary. But when it comes to Latino vote, this specific election, why do you think more voters will be drawn out in November compared to, to March 5th? Uh, exactly the top of the ticket, because uh, I think younger voters uh, have no interest in selecting a local judge. Uh, they have no interest in doing the research or equivocating how a vote for your district attorney uh, uh, primary selection is going to impact their daily lives, as opposed to the presidential candidate. And I think uh, that that's the magic key that we're talking about is the, the, that in Latinos and the Latino community, most of our voters are of the younger uh, classification. So when I hear that, I hear that there's a struggle with outreach and with engagement. What are the challenges to getting more engagement among uh, younger Latino voters in California? I, I always revert back to the campaigns, and I haven't seen any campaign be fresh when it comes to uh, uh, addressing the young voters. I think that we're seeing a lot of debates uh, for the big ticket races. We're seeing uh, targeted mail and TV ads, uh, but they're not talking to the young uh, voters in the demographic and in the, in the platforms that they consume their information. I don't think that campaigns. Uh, have evolved enough where they're seeking the Latino voter, specifically the younger voter or the Latino voter, in the platforms where they consume information. In in the past, and 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 I'm sure there's executives that are going to cringe uh, at Univision and Telemundo when they hear me say that if you just want the uh, senior citizen vote, that's where you put your dollars. But if you want to talk to young Latinos, they're not at Univision or Telemundo anymore. They used to be because they used to watch novelas with grandma. But now that, you know, they don't do that anymore because grandma gets to stream it. And now you have four TVs in the house. And it's not like the old days in the 80s where there was only one TV and everybody was forced to watch what grandma wanted to see. That doesn't exist anymore. Everybody gets to go to their own corners and consume news on their own way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they they have more options, you know, as, as you go on with more generations. I mean, what I'm learning from you, it seems like it's hard to that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done when it comes to learning about Latino voters. And I mean, they're Latinos make up like 40 percent of the state's population. So this is really like an untapped market. Well, electorate. Uh, we also don't want to because I I. I'm not not to pat myself on the back, but I have found success if you do create a campaign strategy way ahead of time that involves an investment of your resources. And, and no campaign is going to know exactly how much you're going to raise. But if you invest not only in just buying a, a voter contact uh, information, but in building a, a surrogate uh, 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 campaign surrogate uh, organizations and you get people to talk about you in their local platforms, you're going to get return on investment, but that takes a lot of work and it takes a few dollars. And I see some campaigns trying to do it and being successful when they do do it. And some still are just stuck and, you know, we just send three mailers and, and a Facebook ad and, uh, and that's all we're going to do. Yeah. You know, California, and really for the country of that matter, I mean, there's been just a large growth of Latinos in, as, as far as a voting population specifically, especially within like the last decade, according to the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials, a nonprofit, between 2016 and 2024, California has seen a 44 percent increase in the number of registered Latino voters. What do you attribute that to? There are... Uh... Uh, uh, their education levels would be one of the first things that come to mind. Uh, you know, more and more Latinos of the younger Latinos. You know, these Latinos are now most of them, the great majority, are born U.S. citizens, born here. They probably don't even speak Spanish as their first language anymore, uh, and they 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 get more engaged with a political discourse in regular uh, media sources and feel that they have. 
a responsibility to be uh, registered. And the let's be frank, at least in California, I know Democrats had done a great job in creating me uh, mechanisms. Like when you go to DMV to register, automatically you, uh, 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 when you get your DMV uh, driver's license, you automatically get registered. That didn't used to happen before. And as most of the population becomes Latino, you know, they fall into these mechanisms and they 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 fall into these machines that automatically register them to vote. And you're going to see more and more as, as the years go by. How have voting behaviors changed? I mean, when we're talking about very broadly Latino voters, but, you know, how they vote, uh, even what party they're affiliated with or registered to is, is far from predictable. And it has evolved in recent years. How have voting behaviors changed as you've observed them? Uh, I would go back to, uh, you know, uh, 10 years back when somehow the way you got Latinos to vote was to find some bad guy, some bad person, some bad policy that uh, had uh, uh, a breath of being racist or being uh, 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 negative against uh, specific Latino communities. And there was a call to action. We have to defend our people. And, and, and that was one of the most popular ways that uh, unions, for example, used to use. You know, it's like, you know, we're gonna protect ourselves, we're gonna go and defend ourselves and let's come out and vote. And I don't see that anymore. And I'm happy not to see that anymore because it means that you now have to talk about the issues. You can't just say those are the bad guys, let's go vote. You actually have to demonstrate that the issues that you're proposing or the candidates that you're supporting uh, have a plan to do uh, actual uh, work in the communities to ensure that that everybody's treated equally, but that there is an understanding of the challenges that working with the Latino community may pose, specifically with language and culture. Hmm. You and I have had this conversation before. <laughs> I believe we had it during the midterm in, in, in 2022. So this isn't the right. first or the last time. And this is a situation that's continuing to evolve. And it just seems like there are still missed opportunities. How would you advise a candidate running right now in California to, to reach out to Latino voters? Well, and I'm going to use this. Um, it's sometimes it, it, it may involve even a Latino candidate themselves who don't know how to speak to a Latino community because, you know, they were not raised in that culture. And it's, it's, it's the first thing I would say is understand the district you're trying to represent and talk to community leaders in, the, in that district, either be religious or, or you know, senior citizens or veterans, and go talk to them about the issues and ask what the issues uh, are where other candidates have been successful in delivering projects and others have failed, and then learn how you can deliver the, your, your platform in a way that it's consumed by those specific uh, demographics, and that includes the mix between the young Latinos and older Latinos, uh, because there is a great difference, not just of language, but of culture. And obviously, you know, there's a difference between a Latino uh, baby boomer and a Latino uh, Gen Xer. Luis, as always, thank you. It's my pleasure, always, and thanks for the invitation. Luis Alvarado is a political strategist, and he is president of Luis Alvarado Public Affairs. Up next, the war in Ukraine is now in its third year, with no end in sight. A Sacramento-based journalist who has traveled to Ukraine since the very beginning shares an update on the fighting and the impact on Ukrainians. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. NPR. 
You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. This weekend marked two years since Russian forces invaded Ukraine, seizing territory and launching attacks by ground, sea and air. The fighting has been brutal and the human toll has been high. That is deeply felt here in Sacramento, which is home to the largest concentration of Ukrainian immigrants in the country, according to the Migration Policy Institute. The death toll among both Ukrainian and Russian troops, as well as civilians, it varies greatly from the tens to hundreds of thousands, depending on the source. But numbers really only capture so much. A Sacramento-based independent journalist has been traveling to Ukraine since the very beginning, a largely self-funded pursuit to humanize the lives caught in a debilitating limbo. And he has joined us on Insight over the past two years to share their stories. Martin Kuz joins us now to give us a sense of the situation on the ground and the morale of Ukrainians who continue to face a conflict without an end in sight. Good afternoon, Martin. Good to be with you, Vicki. Thank you. We've just crossed two years of war, and I go back to when you first joined us in 2022, telling us about that first trip you took in February of 2022. Remind us why, why you traveled to Ukraine two years ago. My sense at the time, after months and months of headlines about uh, the Russian troop buildup at the border, um, gave me an awful feeling that this time Vladimir Putin, uh, the Russian president, was not bluffing. And it was at the time of the Olympics, which were being held in Beijing, and China is a close ally of Russia. And my guess, uh, educated guess, was that Putin, if he was going to launch an invasion, would wait until just after the Olympics. And as it happened, that's what he did. Uh, Only days after the Olympics, the Winter Olympics uh, concluded, uh, tanks and troops from Russia rolled into Ukraine all across the country at a scale that few people anticipated. And it was deeply personal to you. Your father, Eugene Kuz, is a Ukrainian or was a Ukrainian refugee following World War II. Right. The the personal dimension of this particular war has cut very deeply for myself and my family. Uh, he had been a World War II refugee. Uh, he had fought against the Russians back in, uh, in that uh, time in World War II. And he had always warned that Russia would never settle uh, for allowing Ukraine to be independent. And so Putin's saber rattling, if you will, on this occasion seemed louder than on previous occasions. And that made me think I needed to be on the ground uh, to be a witness, uh, both in terms of my, my father's legacy, as well as to try to tell the story of Ukrainians to Western audiences. I remember one of the first articles that you wrote, and when talking about your father, I mean, what stood out to me was that, you know, when he left, I mean, he never returned. He never again saw his parents or his brothers, never forgave Russia. And I think about the large refugee population we have here in Sacramento and how what's going on thousands of miles away is so deeply embedded with with families like yours. Right. Um, Refugees escape war, but the war stays with them. They carry that everywhere. And uh, on on the one hand, you have families torn apart. Uh, You have family members back in Ukraine who have been killed. And at the same time, you're in a, uh, say, if you're in the United States, uh, you feel very far away. You feel helpless. And so that, I think, compounds the trauma uh, that those refugees experience. Uh, And I think it's an inescapable feeling, something that they carry with them every day, regardless of uh, the state of the war that particular day. It's that uh, void within them. And I think my father felt the same. He loved America. He became a naturalized citizen. Uh, but there was a wound that never healed for him because he could never return to his homeland. You arrived to Ukraine in the days leading up to the invasion. You stayed through mid-March of 2022, and then you, you've made subsequent returns since then. But how do you reflect on that first trip you made? How did you reflect on it this weekend? I thought back to traveling to eastern Ukraine, a region called the Donbas, where Russian troops had first invaded in 2014. And I went there, met soldiers in the trenches who were bracing for a larger invasion. And the glimpse of that region of the country gave this awful preview of what the rest of the country might endure if, in fact, Putin launched his full-scale invasion. 
And I was taken back to that time uh, when the war reached its two-year mark because I think if the world had responded in a more forceful way in 2014 and 2015 when Ukrainian forces were valiantly fighting against Russian forces in eastern Ukraine, maybe this wider invasion could have been averted. So it's a reflection on both what happened then or what didn't happen then in terms of Western involvement and then thinking to today and the, and the incredible toll that Ukraine has absorbed um, as a result of what I consider to be poor decisions by Western leaders uh, going back to the start of Vladimir Putin's reign of power in, uh, in 2000. So it's the both, both looking backward and ahead, and I think this coming year uh, looks very grim yeah. for Ukraine. I was going to ask, what do you want people to understand about what the situation is like today, two years later? Often in the United States, we think of the war as a political struggle simply because of what is happening in Congress with stalled military funding for Ukraine. For Ukrainians, it's not abstract. The toll is real and it's every day. Um, it isn't always in the form of lost loved ones, but it is often in the form of missiles dropping from above, from a disrupted economy, from displacement from your home and having to live elsewhere and trying to scrape by. Uh, there is no corner of Ukraine that hasn't been affected. So when we talk about the war reaching its two-year mark and now into its third, uh, it is this constant struggle that Ukrainians face. And this deep into the war now, um, there is, I think, a sense among Ukrainians that they absolutely need Western support to sustain the fight against Ukraine. And they aren't asking for Western troops to be placed on the ground. They're simply saying, uh, please help us fight this war by providing us with the, with the munitions and the weapons that we need. Uh, I think they're worried, rightly so. Uh, and I think that they realize that the coming year uh, is going to be very, very difficult. Have you been able to keep in touch with, with the people that you met along your reporting journeys in Ukraine? I have. We, we generally stay in touch via um, WhatsApp or email and to a person that, uh, that concern exists. And they ask me if I have any insight into what might be happening with funding from Congress. And I said, I wish that I did. And I wish that I had good news. And for them, Ukrainians are are remarkable people, uh, they're almost bereft of self-pity and defeatism. Uh, despite the magnitude of the struggle, they continue to believe that their country will prevail. There was a poll taken in Ukraine in December showing that almost 90% of Ukrainians believe that their country will prevail in the end. Uh, that kind of esprit de corps, that kind of solidarity uh, is kind of a, a democratic ideal that we often uh, give lip service to in the West. It also speaks to a bond that has formed across Ukraine that didn't exist necessarily before the invasion. There were more people, I think, who felt aligned with Russia simply because of history and roots and family. Not anymore. Now I think there is uh, a universal feeling across Ukraine uh, that we do not want to be under the yoke of Moscow any longer. Because even after they gained their independence in 1991, uh, Russia continued to meddle, continued to foment corruption, uh, and disrupt its politics. This was not the first time that Russia was involved in what was happening in Ukraine. Uh, we had political revolutions as a result of that meddling. And Putin has been at the heart of that. And I think if, if Putin expected that he could fracture Ukrainian unity or that, or that Ukrainians might actually welcome Russian troops, uh, he miscalculated badly. That part hasn't changed. But the state of the war is at a precarious point. Hmm. I want to get into or just touch upon conflicting numbers when it comes to casualties because it can vary 
greatly. Over the weekend, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that at least 31,000 Ukrainian troops have been killed in the fighting, though the U.S. officials you know, say that number is likely higher. Russian troop casualty estimates can vary greatly as well, ranging from the tens of thousands to the hundreds of thousands. And when it comes to civilians, the United Nations um, says that over 30,000 civilians have been killed or injured since the war began. I mean, numbers kind of can become a distraction to really what truly is the human cost and the human toll. But how do you come to understand these numbers? I think I think that's an important point that the that the numbers can almost create um, the kind of abstraction in people's minds. I've seen the toll firsthand of of, of um, families bearing members who have been killed in the war, uh, talking to those who have lost loved ones in Bucha, Irpin, Izum, Mariupol, uh, city after city. The numbers reflect what you might say is the fog of war at the political level. Everyone providing these numbers has a particular agenda. I think for Ukraine, it's important for them to try to maintain unity. Do I believe the 31,000 figure? I'm skeptical uh, only because I think that the fighting on the Ukrainian side has been, the toll has been extraordinarily heavy. Uh, from Zelensky's perspective, as he's faced pressure to perhaps mobilize even more uh, Ukrainians for the war effort, I think he's concerned about a higher casualty number perhaps uh, preventing people from signing up or being willing to respond to draft notices. From the United States perspective, providing that higher figure, I imagine it's about what they consider to be uh, uh, an accurate an accurate reflection of what Ukraine has absorbed. And I would say that even though the numbers differ from what Zelensky says and what uh, uh, American officials say, I think I think people have to recognize that the uh, Ukrainians have a much smaller population. At the start of the war, is about 44 million. Russia has about 145 million. Uh, the, the Ukrainian pool of potential recruits is smaller. They're not by any means without potential recruits. They can continue to fight uh, for many years to come. And that is something that I think is important to remember, that Ukrainians aren't about to capitulate, even though the news right now uh, is is quite pessimistic. Um, but I think the numbers are, are a little bit about messaging. And and whoever puts those numbers out, let's not forget when the United States was fighting in Vietnam, it routinely exaggerated the kill count. Um, and so while I don't necessarily doubt what United States officials are saying, there is always the question, what is, what is that underlying agenda? I'll simply finish by saying that uh, the toll on civilians, I believe, is considerably higher than what the official numbers show. I think in Mariupol alone, which is now under Russian control, there have been estimates as high as 25,000 in one city alone. So when I see these lower estimates, um, I, I'm skeptical about those. I recognize that it's a very deliberate process by which they track those numbers, uh, but I think the toll of civilian deaths is is perhaps as much as three times as, or four times as high. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio, and if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Sacramento-based independent journalist Martin Kuz about the war in Ukraine, which has crossed into its third year. A lot has happened in the last two years internationally as well. And I'm curious what role you think other events, other conflicts happening around the world. Um, I think of the Israel-Hamas war, which is entering its fifth month. How do you think that has impacted coverage and the political will for the war in Ukraine? I think it's had a dramatic impact. Um, at the point that Hamas launched its attack on October 7th, Vladimir Putin's birthday as it happens, you saw, you saw a significant shift in terms of both coverage and political will in the West, particularly in the United States, uh, with respect to Ukraine. Ukraine had already become, unfortunately, a kind of political football uh, in the United States. And the war in Israel cr has created, um, to some degree, a kind of uh, false diversion or dichotomy. The United States is capable of uh, walking and chewing gum at the same time. 
it can it can absolutely have a presence in uh, in Israel, and it can also absolutely continue to help Ukraine. Uh, the debate over Israel and Hamas is one that I typically don't get into, as I don't pretend to know nearly as much as I do about the war in Ukraine. Uh, but I I do think that it has to some extent. Uh, been used as an excuse to no longer pay as much attention to Ukraine, uh, nor to provide as much support for Ukraine. Uh, and so that has, that has made the, the job of Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, much more complicated as he tries to sustain Western support. And, and he too has shown that uh, he's tireless. He's willing to travel around the world to continue to meet with European leaders Unfortunately, it doesn't appear that he's getting as much help as he absolutely needs. Another big development that happened in the weeks leading up to marking the third war, third year of war in Ukraine, Russian opposition leader and Putin critic Alexei Navalny, he died in a Russian prison. What impact do you think this has on Ukrainians? I mean, you have a really good sense of of what it is like on the ground. Did this impact them, do you think? I think it demonstrated that Putin feels invincible. I think he believes that he he has an election coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, we might call it a sham election uh, since the result is already known. And eliminating Navalny, his uh, advocates have, have described his death as a murder. And I'm inclined to agree with that phrasing uh, simply because the charges which Navalny has been had been imprisoned on were uh, were absurd, uh, but very much representative of Putin's autocratic regime. And for Ukrainians, look, the the most immediate concern is survival. Uh, that is what guides and shapes their days. And I think that the death of Navalny signals to them that Putin will continue this war, no matter the cost and no matter who might uh, uh, stand against him. Navalny was a, was a somewhat controversial figure within Ukraine because of comments he'd made previously regarding uh, Crimea and, uh, and suggesting perhaps that Crimea should remain uh, in Russia's possession. But regardless, I think if you polled most Ukrainians today and, and asked them, would you prefer Navalny, the opposition leader, the man who was warning the West about about Vladimir Putin and the wars that he wanted to wage, or would you prefer would you prefer this autocratic um, demagogue uh, who is ravaging your country? I think overwhelmingly Ukrainians would choose Navalny, but they wouldn't necessarily say uh, we you know, we feel for him in the way that we do Zelensky. Uh, it's it's simply I think a signal to Ukrainians that. This war will go on as long as Putin is in power and anyone who dares speak against him risks death. Do you plan on returning to Ukraine? I do. My hope is to uh, uh, return in the spring and uh, it's an opportunity to gauge where the war stands at that point. There's a lot of talk recently that um, Russia's offensive its own offensive will begin uh, in late spring or early summer. And this will be an extraordinary test of Ukraine's resilience and its uh, and its military capacity. Uh, I'm deeply, deeply worried about what, what 2024 will bring. But I also believe that the solidarity and the savviness of Ukrainian forces uh, and the Ukrainian people will allow them to endure. We only have 30 seconds left. What do you hope people here in in California, Northern California, listening to this take away from this conversation? I hope that people will remember that Ukraine is at this stage uh, the battleground for democracy and democratic ideals. We talk a lot about that in the United States and the West. They are living it. They are fighting it. They are dying for it. If you care about democracy, wherever you may fall on the political spectrum, if you look closely at this war, you will see that it, it represents the ideals that the West claims to hold dear. I don't know that we would always go to the lengths that Ukraine has to try to preserve independence and sovereignty, but I hope that Westerners and Americans will remember 
what is happening there and will continue to support Ukraine in this titanic struggle. Martin, thank you for the time, as always. Thank you, Vicki. Martin Kuz is an independent journalist based here in Sacramento who has reported on the war in Ukraine since the very beginning. We've been talking about the state of the ongoing conflict, which has entered its third year. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Insight on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We have not one, but two drag show performances running back-to-back this weekend. A fashion show will be taking place at the Rockland Event Center on Saturday, hosted by drag artist Ala Mode. And the next day, the Sacramento LGBT Community Center's annual drag brunch, Mama's Making Bacon, is happening at the Sacramento Memorial Auditorium on Sunday. I sat down with Ala Mode, along with Priya Kumar and Colin Lorenko from the SAC LGBT LGBT Center about what drag means to them. Well, Priya, Colin, and Alamode, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having us. Yeah, excited to be here. All right, Alamode, I want to get to you. I would love for you to introduce yourself to listeners. How did you get involved? Where did your origin story begin with becoming a drag artist? Yeah, um, I went to school for dance, and when I graduated, I didn't feel connected to the scene that I was in. And I auditioned for um, a burlesque troupe, and I got in, and I started performing um, kind of as like a non-binary burlesque performer. Uh, and that was sort of like the beginning for me where I caught that bug. You know, you get like the theater and the dance bug and then you get like the drag bug, which I think is slightly different. Um, took some time off for a couple years for work. And then when I moved to Sacramento, Alamode kind of emerged in January of 2019. Where did the name come from? Um, I wanted something flashy. Uh, it was something like chic. And I didn't want a pun name. Um, I know that sounds super snobby, but a lot of drag artists have pun names and I didn't want that. Um, yeah, and I have a separate story for another time. I'll tell you off air about it. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> I would love that. Now that you you have a, a fashion show coming up on Saturday in Rockland, for people that are interested, I'm just curious, the thoughtfulness that goes behind your performances, what do you look for? What do you want to highlight? Of course. Um, so this is a fashion show that is being run by the Wildflower Daydreams Boutique. They're celebrating their third anniversary. Um, and I'm emceeing the show, and then there are a bunch of different models. When I'm producing or booking for a show, I think my most important thing is to really reflect and highlight the diversity of the drag scene in the Sacramento region. Um, So I don't want to see six white drag queens on stage. I want to see a little bit of everything. Everyone or more people, I think, know what a drag queen is from the popularity of shows like RuPaul's Drag Race and more recently Dragula. But everyone knows queens, Not so much drag kings, drag in-betweens. There are all shades of expression in our art form. Um, And I really want to highlight that when I'm booking a show. What do you love about the drag artistry here in Sacramento and surrounding counties? Oh, um, I think the ingenuity. I think the innovation. I think the absurdity. There's such a rich scene here, and I think a lot. I think if a lot more people went out and actually supported shows, they would get hooked. Well, they can this weekend on they Saturday. Can. Yes, that's so right. So tell us all about what people can expect at Wildflower Daydreams Boutique in Rockland. Yeah. Um, so again, it's the third year anniversary, and she's going to be showing off kind of her spring collection. I'm going to do a performance, and I'll be emceeing throughout. Wonderful. You know, the fashion show, there was some reporting at the beginning of the year, received some opposing comments during like a public comment of a city council meeting in the city of Rockland. And it had something to do surrounding where it was going to be held at the Rockland Event Center. I mean, how did you come to understand 
What took place at that city council meeting? Absolutely. Um, so originally the show was not all ages. I believe it was 18 plus. Several families in Rockland specifically asked if they could bring their kids. So it became all ages. When that flyer went out, the new one, where it said that it was going to be all ages, uh, the family church in Rockland went to a Rockland City Council meeting and um, said that this was not appropriate, right? That children should not be around drag queens, um, and they didn't want their tax dollars going toward this event. There are a couple of things to note that I really want to hit on. First of all, churches don't pay taxes. So the congregation's taxes or the church itself, their taxes would not be going toward this event in a private space, right? This is a private ticketed event. The second part is that they found some images of me online. They put them on posters of me, frankly, very scantily clad. Um, and they put caution tape in front of it that said not safe for children. They didn't dig deep enough to find that I've been in nonprofit education for the last 10 years. I go through background checks. I get fingerprinted. I am possibly one of the safest drag queens, at least in the state of California, to be around children. And that effectively, that was just public comment. It didn't move forward. The city didn't do anything about it. It wasn't a, an agendized item. It did not move forward. They said this is a private event, you know, so this is they can have the event. But I think the other challenging part of this, and one of the reasons I reached out to Cap Radio specifically, is that um, there were three different news segments that told my story for me. As a part of a marginalized community, that is not equitable. So me being able to advocate for myself and speak to my experience and add more context was left out of the overall picture. Mm. What would you like to say to people who've never been to a drag show and maybe they're just uncomfortable with the idea? What would you say to people who, you know, haven't been to one before? Yeah, um, we are a lot more similar than we are different. And my favorite thing about drag is the fact that it pokes fun at the absurdity of life. Um, it's kind of like the song Ironic by Alanis Morissette. Um, I think life is so hard and such a grind and drag is an escape. And it's a really wonderful place. I was just home in New York recently and I was having a really bad day and I just popped into a drag bar in Chelsea. And 20 minutes at that drag show was a healing experience for me. How excited are you about Saturday? I'm really excited for it. Um, I expect that this group will probably be there. And uh, it's a pretty small walk from the driveway to the entrance. Uh, I do have some people there to support me, including some security. I'm excited for the love that's going to emanate, you know, through that space and hopefully kind of maybe make some waves in that community. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. And if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Sacramento drag artist Ala Mode about their upcoming Wildflower Daydreams Boutique fashion show this Saturday at the Rockland Event Center. Luckily, this isn't the only drag show that's happening in our area this weekend. On Sunday, the Sacramento LGBT Community Center will have its annual Mama's Making Bacon. Priya, just starting with you, I mean, I know it's been going on for years now, but what is Mama's Making Bacon? Oh, yes. So Mama's Making Bacon is the Sacramento LGBT Community Center's annual fundraiser. It's not just a fundraiser, though. It is a fundraising gala extravaganza drag brunch. So it's not a typical drag brunch. It is a drag brunch that is elevated at Memorial Auditorium. There's seating and tables and a runway in the middle and plated brunch. Um, and the most important thing is that this is raising funds for the center. And it's one of our biggest events and biggest fundraising events of the year. Colin, what will the donations go towards at the center? It's a great question. So all the funds that are raised at Mama's Bacon Bacon go directly to support year-round programming at the LGBT Center, which includes our housing programs, our respite programs, as well as our sexual health, advocacy, and uh, economic justice programs. What do both of you love most about Mama's Bacon Bacon? Because it's been going on for like 10 years now. Absolutely. Well, so I'm really fortunate. This is my second year um, as the event director for Mama's Making Bacon. And I am so excited to get to put really incredible LGBTQ plus and allied talent sourced directly here from the Northern California region's creative economy in front of folks who maybe don't go to a drag show every weekend or maybe don't uh, get out to go see the you know our local scene um, and really get to not only show off the amazing talent we have here, 
but also uh, do it in a really elevated way in a, in a historic venue um, right in the heart of the central city. And all in all, it's a party with a purpose that raises crucial, crucial dollars for the center um, to continue doing the good work that our whole staff does. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I'm I'm definitely excited for all of that as well. Um, definitely the drag queens and the drag performers that are going to be there is going to be really fun. Um, this will be my second one. I, my first one was last year when I started with the center, so I'm still fairly new. But it's been so fun planning this event, and it means so much to the community, I think, as well. Um, it's a great way for us to connect with the, our supporters in the region and gain new supporters and branch out even more. So it's really inspiring to see how many people in the Sacramento region support the center in our programs. Can you preview some of the, the performances, some of the drag artists that are going to be taking the stage? Absolutely. So uh, we have a few returning fan favorites, as well as some first-time Mamas uh, performers. Uh, the show will be emceed, actually co-hosted, uh, by two uh, Sacramento fan favorites again, uh, Juliana Budget and Sasha Devereaux. Um, and then we have a couple of performers that are also doing burlesque. So we're bringing in some folks from the Darling Clementines, which have a regular show at Harlow's. Um, and that's Chacha Bernadette and Diaja Girl on Fire. Very exciting. Um, we couldn't do the show, it seems like, without the sweetheart of, of Sacramento, Princess B, or the fierce, fierce, unique Moore. So we have some really great, great talent coming to the show. And I know that this is a gala-style event. Is there an age range? Or age limit? Yeah, absolutely. You know, while we wholeheartedly believe in uh, sharing the joy of drag with all ages in our community, this is a 21 plus event, primarily just because there is flowing mimosas. (laughs) Flowing mimosas. Okay, great. That sounds, it's Sunday. (laughs) Brunch, brunch, right? Absolutely. You know, Alamode and Colin, I'm just curious, you know, drag shows have been around for decades (laughs) like they've been around for a long time you know but I do think they've become in more heightened focus in the mainstream especially in news articles and media coverage I mean it is an example at a city council meeting that you and I were talking about what does drag mean to you Uh, what do you think people should learn and know about it Drag is an art form that's been around for thousands of years. And through things like colonization, I should not say things, but conflict, you know, there's this erasure of a of cultures of people. Um, We can look at the two spirit community um, and other communities throughout the world. And um, their kind of play around gender expression and gender identity, right? And how they did not exist on the binary. Um, And uh, you look at the last hundred-ish years and see how, that, how much that shifted. There were drag shows in Old Sack in the mid-20s. There were burlesque shows in Old Sack in the mid-20s. There's an incredible book by William Berg called Wicked Sacramento, and it's all about this like nightlife that's always ex- existed in our community. Drag, like I said before, it pokes fun at the absurdity of life. It really pulls from a lot of different art forms um, in a way that no other art form can. And I say art form because I think so often we are characterized only as glorified exotic dancers. You know, these people who are, I don't even know where to begin, right? But a lot of us put a lot of time and energy and love into what we do. And um, I think it shows. How are you, Colin? You know, well, with an answer like that, how am I supposed to follow? Uh, (laughs) However, you know, I can speak on a personal note, because in addition to being a drag show producer, I'm also a performer. As a queer person and, you know, cisgender gay man, there were times, even in my own community, I didn't feel like I had sense of community. I was shy. I didn't feel like I had a place for my... There was a place for me in, like, at Pride events. And actually, it was through performance and doing drag and kind of getting once you put the wig and the lashes on you are you you've got this like armor on you and it just allowed me to to make friends that I never thought I'd make uh find community and ultimately my trajectory of performing got me to where I am now where I get to share that with a lot of folks by producing shows and I just I I hate that drag and you know that type of alternative performance um and entertainment has become so politicized when a lot of times what really is happening is it's it's like smoke screens, you know, to to hide other agendas that different opposing forces uh, uh, 
when drag really should be bipartisan, you know, I really loved how Alamo said that we're more alike than we are different, because that's so true, not just with drag, but in all walks of life. So that's what it means to me. And I think by showing up for drag shows, you know, your local performers, not just the big brunch galas that with VIP, you know, tickets, um, but also for like the Monday night newcomer show, you know, at your like go support and then also care for your your drag community. There's a lot of celebrity entertainers out there and even celebrity drag performers that have security detail, but that's not every day, you know? So like offer to walk Alamo to their car, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like take care of your community and we'll continue to take care of you as well. Finally, how do you want people to feel after your shows on Saturday and Sunday? Alamo, I'll start with you. Your show is on Saturday in Rockland. Yes. Um, I want people to feel uh, healed. I want them to feel the same way that I feel when I go to a show or when I have my best show as a performer. Um, yes. And I'm excited for this year of drag. I think that there's a real opportunity to continue to heal through this incredible art form. How about you, Colin? Well... I really hope that folks um, leaving Mama's Make and Bacon on Sunday feel an overwhelming sense of joy that they not only got to have a great time with their friends and chosen family um, and maybe made some new friends and chosen family at our show, but also that if they choose to, to donate or support the center, that they really understand what a difference they're making. Um, and maybe we'll take that that little bit of making change, you know, being the change that they want to see, taking it with them into the world as they leave our event. And Priya, I'll let you send us off. Yeah, definitely. I think um, joy and a sense of community is the two biggest ones and understanding that you're part of something bigger, especially being in Sacramento. I think Sacramento is a very awesome, like small town feel sometimes. And it's nice to see it when we show up for each other. So I hope to see that on Sunday. Well, Priya, Colin, Alamode, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Thank, thank you. you. Have a great time this weekend. Thanks. That is drag artist Alamode, along with Priya Kumar and Colin Lorenko from the Sacramento LGBT Community Center, talking about back-to-back drag performances this weekend. Alamode show will be at the Rockland Event Center on Saturday, and on Sunday will be Mama's Making Bacon, a drag brunch at the Sacramento Memorial Auditorium. And that is it for Insight today. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Have a great day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.